Thanks, Ash. If you want to leave uh, your Bibles open, those four verses, uh, it's not the longest passage we've looked at. Uh, but I want to start tonight by letting you know something about my preparation this week. I've struggled to write this talk more than any other talk that I've written this year. I don't know what it is. Uh, the passage, it's, it's not a particularly hard passage. It's short, it's clear, you kind of understand what's going on. There's just something about it that I just I couldn't start writing. Like I'd done, I'd done the work in the passage, I'd mapped out the flow of how it all worked, I'd, I'd put down all the main ideas and kind of seen some application points that were there, I'd looked into the Greek nuances of the text and the structure and how that kind of hung together. But it was just like there's something within me that just didn't want to put down on paper the conclusions that the passage pointed out. Have you ever had that happen? You open up God's Word, you hear what it's saying, but you're reluctant to pray about it for yourself. You're reluctant to be able to write something down about it, for you know it's kind of pricking you somewhere. And I think that's what's happened with me this week. The moment that we struggle to kind of apply it to ourselves, I wonder if that is the moment where God is actually pointing to something in our own hearts. So I want to pray now that God would help me to apply this to me as we apply it to one another, to hear what Jesus is saying to us in this passage tonight. Let's pray. Father, as we have heard your word read, help us to recognize that your word is living and active. That through your spirit and by your word, you cut away our complacency and our sin. You, like a two-edged sword, show us how great your son is. You show us how we need to change and be comforted and trust in your promises more. And tonight, Lord, we pray you would do exactly that. For each and every person in this room, Lord, we ask that we would see you clearly, that we would hear you clearly, and we might walk away from your word tonight with the clarity you need us to have, being able to apply this to our lives so that we might listen and obey you. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. Luke 10, 38 starts like this. While they were traveling... Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. I want you to imagine for a moment what that would be like to be Martha, to welcome into your home someone as famous as Jesus. What do you think for a moment? Who who have you ever, what's the most famous person you've ever had a meal with? Non-rhetorical question. Love to hear. Who's the most famous or most important person you've ever had a meal with? Love to hear. All the guys in the room, if you want a tip, just call out your girlfriend's name right now. You'll get brownie points for later. Yeah. Paul Washer. Paul Washer. Okay, so an American preacher. Yeah, yeah. Cool. I've had a meal with him. Awesome. Who else? Don't, don't be bashful. Just, you know. Remember, it's got nothing to do with you. They're all the famous ones. It's cool to be able to say it. You know. Yeah, yeah. John Hell, the guy who commentated the 2006 Soccer World Cup final. Okay. The Soccer World Cup final commentator. Love it. Any others? Someone this morning, a bit of a rugby nut, uh, said, he's actually here tonight as well, I'm just going to say it for him, that uh, he had dinner with Kevin Mialamu, an all-black. That's pretty cool. I think it didn't count because he's his cousin. But anyway, <laughs> you know, um, that's there. Uh, we always kind of have these famous moments. Uh, sometimes you've even eaten with people that are famous. I don't know if this has happened to you, and you haven't realised it. Um, so I, I think I said this in a, in a sermon the other day, but... Um, 
I was at a cafe, I was having lunch, I met with someone, and then I bumped into someone who saw me in the cafe later on that day. I picked up from, that uh, was one of our, kindy, our kids' kindy teachers. And she's like, oh, how was that, you sitting in the cafe with you know, someone so famous? And I went, oh, I'm not very famous. <laughs> she said, no, I wasn't talking about you, I was talking about Richie McCaw, who was sitting next to you. And I'm like, really? <laughs> Awkward moment. So I kind of had lunch with him, but not really, he was at some other table in the same cafe. And when I was at Bible college, we'd always eat lunch together. You kind of want to picture what it was like. It was kind of a large, a large group of students. In fact, so large we had to have it over two lunches, a 12 o'clock lunch, then a one o'clock lunch. It's kind of just picture Hogwarts, right? When everyone's in there. Oh, and I need to make a correction. Last week, I can't believe no one picked me up on this. I actually said that uh, being a half-blood was a muggle. That's wrong. It's a mudblood. Anyway... So for all those people that are Harry Potter fans, I'm sorry. I want to re-instill in you a confidence that I do research stuff. Uh, and, and I just want to apologise right there. So we're, so we're at Hogwarts, I mean Bible College. And, um, <laughs> and we're sitting there. And every lunch, one of the, the senior students, who were the kind of um, the, the student representatives of the student body, uh, would get up to say announcements and to give thanks for the food. Uh, that was one of their roles that they had. Now, when I was in my last year of college, I was uh, selected as one of the senior students. And normally it wasn't like a, a particularly stressful job. You'd, kind of, you'd have to sit at the table with the principal because uh, you'd have to get up and lead. And anyone could sit at that table, so it wasn't particularly special. It weren't reserved seats or anything like that. You could go and sit there. You'd sit at the table with the principal. Um, it was just normally a pretty average type of job. You'd get up, you'd pray, you'd let people know announcements. Except for the weeks, there was a visiting speaker. So the college would invite these theological greats to come along and lecture us. It was a fairly prominent college in Australia. And they'd bring in these giants, these people who were like, you know, head and shoulders above everyone else in the world of theology. And so you'd be sitting at the table with the principal of the college and these giants, like guys like Don Carson. I had lunch with Don Carson across the table, talked about things about theology and a guy called Carl Truman, who's this particularly pointed character. He's always got something sharp to say and if you get things wrong, he'd be like, why did you say that? And he's kind of out there. He's, he was um, a lecturer in the US of Westminster Theological College. And all these people would come along. And it was a great opportunity to sit at this table, to have lunch with these people and to ask questions. But every time some fancy theologian was at college and I was sort of the person who had to say grace, about halfway through lunch, it had kind of dawned on me and I'd click. This uneasy feeling would come in my stomach and I'd start to switch off from the conversation and think about, hang on a minute, in about five minutes... I'm going to need to get up in front of all the college body and pray in front of this theological giant. I'm going to need to think about what I'm saying and how I say it. They're going to be judging me. I'm a fourth-year student. I'm supposed to know the Bible. If I pray something that's not right, what are they going to think of me? And I don't know, you're kind of there thinking, what is going on at this point? Now, to kind of help you understand what that would be like, uh, imagine for a moment you had the, the privilege. Someone came up to you and said, look, I want you to sing a song for a small audience. And you're like, all right, I don't really like singing, but I'll give it a crack. And they go, oh, P.S., it's Adele that you're singing to. You're like, I don't want to sing to Adele. What am I going to say? Be like, hello? (laughs) How does that work? Or or, or imagine, I don't know, for for guys, maybe that's one thing. You'd love to sing to Adele. You'd hate it. I was thinking, imagine this. Um, You've got a family and you've got a son and he's he's playing rugby and and it's great. And the team need a coach. So finally you go, look, I'll, I'll coach the team. Then you find out, just after you've said yes to coaching the team, that one of the boys in the team is the son of Richie McCaw. And you're going to be coaching this team every week, and Richie's going to be there critiquing your coaching skills with his boy in the team. How are you going to feel? That's what it felt like to get up at college and pray in front of these lecturers. Then imagine how it feels 
The moment you invite to dinner the man you're pretty convinced is God the Son. Imagine what you're thinking about preparing the meal. Add to that the whole Middle Eastern hospitality culture that existed here where providing good food was the way that you honoured your guests. Imagine what's going through your head. What have I done? I should have shut my mouth. Why have I invited God the Son to come to lunch? What is this going to be like? For Martha, it's, it's a high-pressure gig. And you can imagine she wants to get it right. And so as you see the scene that's kind of happening around, she, she's buzzing around thinking all the things she needs to do. She's like, right, I've got to milk the goat because that's important because you need goat's milk, I'm sure. And then all the other things that you need to make this work well. You're kind of straightening all the rugs on the ground and, and, and kind of dusting them all off, making sure there's enough food, checking the first century equivalent of a fridge or freezer, whatever they did there, and going, is there enough leftovers? What am I going to do? What's this going to be like? You can imagine what's going on through her head. I can imagine it because my mum's exactly like this. I don't know if you've got similar people in your family, but I remember growing up, whenever we had someone special coming over for dinner, mum would be yelling out orders to me like some army general. She'd be like, right, so now when you've done that, you need to do this thing, you need to clean up that, you need to pick up the dog poo from the back corner of the yard. I'm like, mum, we live on five acres. Like, there's plenty of places for people to walk around. You don't need to worry about that little area. And she's like, no, no, we need to do that. And it would always be the stuff that we never did normally. I don't know if it's similar for you, you've got someone coming around and all of a sudden that pile of stuff that's on the, kind of, on the bar as you walk into to the, to our, um, our dining room would always have to be clean now. It had been there for like two months. We'd be having dinner there for two months. Mum would be like, no, no, got to put that into the spare room so no one could see that. After a while, I was like, oh, I'm onto this. I know what I'll do. So I, um, I went to mum and I was like, mum, I'm just feeling a little bit uneasy about all this cleaning up that we're doing. She's like, what? What are you going on about, Rowan? And um, it was a normal thing mum kind of said to me. And I'd be like, well, I feel like it's a little bit disingenuous. Like we're inviting people around and we're giving them the impression that this is what our house is normally like, but it's never like that. I think we're kind of lying to them by wanting to clean up the house. I don't think we should be doing this at all. Mum would just say, get back to work, right? <laughs> what are you doing? For Martha, this was a meal to remember. She wanted to serve and honour Jesus in the way that first century Middle Eastern culture did. And so she's working herself up into a frenzy, getting everything done, making sure it's working, serving, pouring, feeding, all that sort of stuff. And then the camera kind of pans back, and we meet the sister. Now, I'm pretty convinced that this sister is a younger sister. You know why? She's not doing anything. Like, it's the older sister that's got to carry the responsibility, and this one, she's just sitting there doing nothing. Her name's Mary, and I think she's a slacker. Have a look at what um, Luke records about verse 39. Martha had a sister named Mary, who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. Well, Martha is kind of working her butt off to honour Jesus. Mary is just sitting and listening. That's the life, right? Look at her. Just sitting there, listening to this guy called Jesus that she's had around, not helping. You can, you can kind of feel for Martha at this point, can't you? You're going to stand back and be like, I know exactly what you're thinking right now. Mary? I'm sick of Mary. Always kind of like, oh, there's someone coming along, wanting to listen to them. You know, half the stuff I'm cleaning up is her junk too, but does she help? No, she just sits there and listens to this guy called Jesus. Well, I've got to do all the work. I'm sick of Mary. I'm sick of the frustration I keep going on about. Never picks up a towel in the bathroom. Never cleans up the dishes. I'm sick of this sister. I don't know why mum ever had her. Right? But you can see what's kind of going on in her mind. But that's why we've got to stop for a second and remember the context of this passage. Luke's recording these events in the life of Jesus 
remember, on Jesus walking to his death. And he's put it here just after the passage about the Good Samaritan. Jesus told this story about this man who went totally out of his way to serve his enemy in the street who'd been beaten and bashed and stripped. He kind of put him on his donkey and did everything he possibly could for him. He pulled out all the stops, fed him, clothed him, housed him, gave him money. That's how you treat your neighbor right. And you're thinking, sounds like Martha's doing all stops here, doesn't it? Like, I'm with Martha in this, in this kind of way that she's acting. But then Luke pops in a little phrase that turns this whole narrative on its head. Did you notice it? Look at verse 40 of chapter 10. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks. I think as we read that, we're supposed to go, what? Martha's the good one here. It's not just like a sister. Martha's actually doing all she can to love her neighbor Jesus, who's now in a house and needs to be eating. Now, that word distracted, it literally means that her attention was pulled away from where it should have been. It's what distracted kind of means there. Her her service, her hospitality, her desire to do good things ended up being a means of her distraction, of being pulled away from what she should have been doing. So much so that we see she ends up questioning God. She starts out wanting to serve Him, but in the end... She questions God the Son. Listen to this, verse 40, the second half. And she came up and asked Jesus, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So tell her to give me a hand. Imagine saying that to God. Imagine getting to the point where you're so frustrated in what is going on in your life and what you're trying to do that you rock up to God and say, God, what are you doing? Why aren't you stepping in? Imagine getting to the place in your life where you think you've got it right and God has it wrong. Something's gone drastically wrong here with Martha and what she's doing to get there so quickly. Now, how do you expect Jesus to respond? If you're at this dinner party, a bit of a scene, Martha's called over this distinguished guest, told him to sort out the slacker sister and get things sorted and pull him in line with where she thinks things should be. How do you think Jesus would respond? How would you respond? If you're here tonight checking out Jesus, I want to show you something about Jesus' character here. Now, there's a number of ways he could have responded. Uh, verse 41, it's hard to I mean, it's easy to know what he said. He said, Martha, Martha, you were worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice and it would not be taken away from her. Now, the question is, how did he say it? We know what the words are, but was it like the angry version? Did he say, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice, and it will not be taken away from her. Was that what was going on as Jesus kind of corrects her and pushes it there? Was it kind of like the the Brady Bunch version? Who is at least knows of the Brady Bunch? Here's a story. Oh, if I sing, apparently I've got to pay Ryan 10 bucks. Um, Okay. Is it like the Brady Bunch version? You know how, like, what's this? There's two sisters, there's three, isn't there? But one's called um, Marsha, and one's, what's the other one called? I keep forgetting. But anyway, what one says to Marsha all the time, do you remember what she says? Whenever there's some problem going on, she comes downstairs and talks to her mum and says, Marsha, 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 right? Is that what Jesus is doing? Martha, Martha, you're always worried and upset about so many things, huh? It's like, 
chiding her. I say, what's going on with you, girl? I don't think it's either of those. And I'll tell you why. Whenever throughout Scripture someone uses someone's name twice, it kind of intensifies what's going on in that situation. It brings about more of that emotion. So when David mourns and grieves over his son's death, Absalom, he doesn't just say, Absalom, my son. But he's recorded as saying, my son, Absalom. My son, Absalom. Why did he say it twice? You're seeing the grief and the care and the compassion of David towards his son's death. When Jesus is facing the penalty that you and I deserve on the cross and he cries out to God, signifying that it's in line with Psalm 23. What does he say? He doesn't just go, God, why are you forsaking me? My God, my God, why are you forsaking me? There's a moment there of intense question, intense pain, intense compassion for what's actually happening at that moment. When Jesus here turns to Martha, it's not angry, it's not chiding her, it's empathy, it's compassion. Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice and it will not and it will not be taken from her. Jesus cares for Martha deeply. If you're looking for a king or someone to follow, you're trying to work out the character of this man, Jesus. He's one who is so filled, full of compassion, he'll even die your death for you. In fact, that's what he's done. And at this moment, he sees his friend and follower, Martha, and has deep compassion for her, even though she's questioning him. What a great God we have. What an amazing person Jesus is. Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things. As it turns out, Martha was worried and upset about many things, too many things. There's so much going on for her at this moment. And that's where we see the deceptiveness of service. The deceptiveness of service. We need to hear the warning here. Because Martha's issue is subtle and deceptive. She's worried. She's, she's concerned at this moment that her home and her service of Jesus might reflect poorly on her. If this doesn't go well, what will people think of us, Mary? What will people say about us? What will Jesus think of us? She's doing good things. She's, she's trying to love and serve Jesus. But they end up pulling her attention away from the necessary thing. So easy, isn't it, to put on a, fa- a facade of service in order to hide our desire for approval. We can do all sorts of things so that others see that we're serving, so we even kid ourselves at some point. I love serving Jesus in these ways, so I'm going to go hard out. I'm going to burn out for Jesus, right? I'm going to do all that I can, and so then I can be like, yes, I've done all that I can, but sometimes, deep down, what's actually going on is that we're saying, I want everyone else to recognize that I am the man, that I'm actually serving Jesus. I want people to go, you know what, you're, you're a really hard worker. You're, you're doing really well here. From the outside, it can be really hard to tell what's going on. But Jesus knows our hearts. He knows what's going on in all of us, including Martha. And Jesus is asking us, who are we serving in our serving? 
Who are we serving? Is it our reputation, our pride, or our king? One of the things I've noticed about our culture has been the way we respond when someone asks us how we're doing. How have you been in the last few weeks? I do it as well. Say I was to say to you right now, hey, how have you been in the last few weeks? What is the first thing that comes to your mind? Call it out right now. Go. Good? Well, I heard it. Good? Let's say it again. I want you to think of one thing. How have, you, how have the last few weeks been for you? You ready? Think of an answer. How have the last few weeks been for you? Go. Okay, half, the, half the people don't know what they're talking about. The other half have been busy. You lazy sisters. No. Um... <laughs> Busy, I say it. It's the kind of socially acceptable answer. How have you been? Oh, busy. Everyone's like, check. Not a lazy turd. Like, oh, you know, it's what people think. People look at us and go, busy is what we need to be doing. We need to be doing things. We need to be getting things done. That's what David Allen says. Get things done. But if we stop and ask why we're doing what we need to be doing, we start to notice there's a, an approval mixed in there. If I don't do this, people will think I'm lazy or disorganized or ineffective. I start to feel this way. I feel it in myself. This passage is talking to me here. And I think the reasons why I do things is so often so that people don't think I'm lazy or disorganized or ineffective. Maybe, I mean, I know everyone thinks I'm a sinner, but maybe they'll see one of my weaknesses. (gasps) And so we busy ourselves with stuff and life. When really what's moving us inside, what's motivating us, is a desire to impress others. That's not love of Jesus. That's not love of others. That's not serving. Not on a heart level. It's building myself up. It's masquerading myself as diligence, competence, and productivity. What's actually driving me is a fear of mankind or a desire for the praise of those around me rather than the praise of my God for serving and listening to Him. It got me thinking, it's funny how most of our anxieties, most of the times we feel stressed and worried about the stuff of life, it's very rarely that we're worried about what God thinks of us. I'll try and think through the last time I was worried about what God thinks of me, honestly worried about that. I don't think it comes into my mind that much. The last time I was worried about what others think of me, well, I could tell you the number of times today, but I can't. There's so many. We are more concerned about what others think of us than the God who will judge us and set our destiny for eternity. And so what we do is we get crazy busy. We get out there and we we do stuff in a frenzy. We serve here, we serve there, we do as much stuff as we can so that we look like we are acceptable, are good. No wonder some of us are anxious and troubled We're trying to get more done than we can possibly do. We're trying to do more than what Jesus has set us out to do, perhaps. And while we're trying to do all these things, being crazy busy, we neglect the one thing we must do, the one thing that is necessary, that we should be focusing our lives on and spending our time doing. What is that? Listening to Jesus. Listening to Jesus. That's what... Mary does. She's seated at the feet of Jesus, listening to him. And I'll be thinking, why, why wasn't Mary distracted in the same way Martha was? 
I think the reason she wasn't distracted was because she was enthralled with who Jesus was. She was captivated by his word. This is the woman that would later go and take this perfume and pour it all over him in consecration for his burial because he was the king. This is God the Son who has come. God the Son is here and I want to know him. I want to listen to him. This is the time for listening to Jesus. What she had heard Jesus taught, what she had heard Jesus say were words that brought life. Words from God. She was drinking living water and eating the bread of life itself. She was captured by who this man was and what he had done and was doing. It was like a moth to light. I know I often use this illustration. I think it's so helpful. She was so fixated on what Jesus was doing. She was like a moth flapping its wings to that brightest light in the night sky. So captivated by God the Son become flesh for her that she simply couldn't tear herself away to even worry about the shame that would come on her family. She just wanted to hear from Jesus. When you're engrossed and captivated by someone or something, it's got this sometimes positive, sometimes negative effect, depending on who it is you're captivated by. You just become tunnel-visioned, so focused on, on what's in front of you that you can't do anything else. Um, Recently, Sarah and I have been chatting about moving the location of my study from um, where it is uh, in one part of our house, kind of where the church photocopier is, just to another part that would kind of give us more, more room to be able to do other things in that, uh, in the, in that church end of our house. And um, we're going through the pros and cons. Sarah's an accountant. She's really helpful with pros and cons. Like, well, how does this work? She's balancing books. And she's like, what, what are the negatives? I'm like, oh, it'll probably be a little bit noisier if, when it's closer to the family when the kids are home. And Sarah just looks at me and she goes... I said, that's ever going to stop you. She's like, you sit at the dinner table and there could be all these things going on around you. Kids will be screaming and crying and you're just still talking about the one thing you're focused on that you want to tell me. You don't hear anything else is happening. You're so focused on that. I think it could be a good thing. I'm focused. (laughs) She's like, you've got children. Love them. (laughs) Being engrossed and captivated by something or someone has an effect on clarifying for us what matters. We make time for what we're passionate about and we neglect what we feel are less important. We can be tempted to think that the right time management techniques are the answer to a well-balanced life, to getting the important things done. But that's not true. Techniques might increase our efficiency, but they can't determine our priorities. They can't determine what things in our lives get our time and attention. Our heart does that. We order our lives by what we are captured by, by what we love. I'm good on you for being here tonight, those of you who are studying, as exams loom, as you're concerned about coming to this room and getting fined 150 bucks and having a phone on you. Did you set stick up? It's pretty crazy. You got a phone or a watch. What is that? They don't want you to know the time. Man, we're allowed watches. But anyway, I guess you've got Bluetooth now. Um, you can get answers on them. But good on you for being here in a time that is pressured to seek what God is saying to us. Keep doing that. The issue with Martha was she's so busy doing things for Jesus that she's neglected to hear what Jesus is saying to her. She's so busy doing things for him, she's neglected to listen to him. For those of us who are Christians, for those of us who are in leadership in some way in a Christian area, 
sometimes we begin to feel tired and empty and like we're edging towards burnout. The reason that might be the case is because we think there are things that we have to do and that only we can do and we forget there's only one thing we need to do and that is listen to Jesus. Sit at his feet and listen to him. What is it that shapes your life? Do you think through the next 20, 40, 60, 80 years, what events and decisions are going to shape who you are at that final day? As I think through that, I'm tempted to think it's going to be the big decisions we make. Those, those kind of life-changing moments of kind of uh, ecstasy and joy that we have amazing moments of celebration, they'll shape who I am. Or maybe those really low moments, those you know, three or four that we have in our life where we feel like we've hit rock bottom. Maybe they're the things that will shape who we are at the end. I don't think that's actually the case. So the times that life knocks you for six or fills you with ecstasy, well, they have an effect... <laughs> but they're generally um, guided and constrained by all the other decisions we make in life. It's what we do with those moments. It's the hundred and thousand decisions we make of our priorities and what we're going to do each day. We aren't shaped by two or three or four or five massive moments in our life. We're shaped by a hundred thousand decisions we make each week and each month about what we will do and when. So it is in shaping our Christian lives. Sitting at Jesus' feet isn't something that you get to do three or four times in your life. It's not something like, whoa, I remember that once or twice as I opened up the Bible and God's Word really spoke to me. I'm like, man, that was great. That's what I'm going to hold on to. That's not the way that we're shaped as Christians. It's not the way God works. He works through His Word. The Bible is living and active. God's Spirit, together with the Word, changes us and shapes us and molds us that we might be made day by day renewed into the likeness of Jesus It's an all-of-life focus sitting at the feet of Jesus. It's it's an orientation and we need to keep our heads in the game. We need to spend time with our Saviour and see who He is and what He's done and keep plumbing the depths of how amazing He is. What I realised as I was thinking through this talk was how desperately hard my sinful self runs for approval and status. How much of my motives are mixed in, good and bad, with what others think. And how my desire to serve and to see people built up in the kingdom actually distracted me from listening to Jesus. I've been reminded again of just how much I need to sit and listen. I should know it. Every report card since kindergarten has said, if Rowan would just shut his mouth and listen, he would do far better at school. (laughs) They've all said it. Here our king is saying to us, stop trying to build yourself up and point to you and listen to me. Spend time listening to me. And just open up the Bible, read a bit. Oh yeah, I've read that. Tick. Great. I'm a super Christian. I can walk out in the world today because I've heard from God's word. Open up the Bible and hear what God is saying to us. Meet in the pages of Scripture the one who made you, who sustains you, who's promised you life forever, your name written in heaven, 
No more mourning or crying or pain. Meet the one who came and died in your place, who suffered the wrath and punishment you and I deserve so that we might be forgiven. The one who is king forever. How are you going at listening to Jesus? Really? Are you listening to him? Now this passage, it's not an excuse for us to stop serving. Some people come along and go, well, there's people like Mary that are really into listening. There's people like Martha that are really into doing. I'm the doing one. I'm just going to keep being the Martha woman or man. All right, off we go. And that's, that's what we do. And I was like, you know what? There's some people that do lots of the serving around this church, uh, and that's great. They're like, more like the Martha people. I'm more like Mary, where I just sit and listen to Jesus and let it kind of drink it up. And that's not the picture here at all. The picture here is saying, do not let your service of Jesus disqualify you and pull you away from hearing the King of the universe shape and mold your life. It's not Mary or Martha. It's, are you listening to Jesus? Are you therefore responding to Him in service with your all? It's still calling us to be radical. Remember the context? Jesus has just sent out 70 people. He's just called people to forget their families at all costs, to be his disciple, to serve him as king of their lives, to, to cross the road like the good Samaritan and to care for people even when it hurts. Jesus isn't saying, don't do anything. He's just saying, don't go crazy thinking it's all about you and what you do. So often we as Christians end up trying to serve Jesus like chickens with their heads cut off. Have you ever seen, who's ever seen a chicken with their head cut off? Oh, nice. This is good. Right? They still run round, right? I grew up on a small farm and you chop their heads off and then you kind of whack them in the hot water and then you pluck them and then everything's sweet. Um, a little bit later after you've pulled some things out. But, um, but they just still run around. If you chop their head off and put them on the ground, they, they can still run for like, I don't know, sometimes a couple of minutes. You see them running around like crazy. Blood's going everywhere. It's messy. That's what it's like when we try and busy ourselves for approval or pride or position or popularity rather than be freed to listening to Jesus. It'll last for a while, but we'll end up questioning God. We'll end up dead because we've walked away from the one who's shown us his incredible grace. I think it's a great moment for us as a church to individually stop and take stock. Am I spending time in the Word of God? Am I spending time listening to Him? Uh, am, I, am I taking the time out? You know, originally the Sabbath Sundays, or Saturdays, but um, the idea of it wasn't just to be like, oh, I'm going to rest and do nothing and just be a, a kind of big slob sitting there going, I'm just basking in the glory of nothingness all day long. The Sabbath was a day to listen to God and be energized in His Word, and to take time out from work and doing, so that we might listen and encourage. Are your days off spent in the Word? Spending some time in that, being refreshed? Are you taking time out of your schedule to think through how I might be listening to God? I want to encourage you to take half a day off once a month. It's something we put in our contracts for all our staff, that once a month you need to take half a day off to just kind of rejuvenate and relax and rest in the Word of God. problem is, in the five years I've been a pastor at this church, I think I've done it once. I need to change. I need to spend time listening to God, to ask Him to capture my heart again with who Jesus is. 
It's not that I've lost who He is. So often I don't listen to Him. I get on with doing. There's a great book that we've got on the bookstall out there. If you want to think through this, uh, it would be really helpful. It's called Serving Without Sinking. There's a picture of it. Um, it'll come up in a minute. Uh, Serving Without Sinking is this great book that helps you to think through why we serve and, and how we serve. The book actually encourages you to take a break from serving. I'm totally happy at this point. I want to say, if you're feeling like you're burnt out, take a break. Let people, give people a notice they need, but take a break from serving. But here's the thing. Don't just take a break and be like, yeah, I'm on the cruise ship of greatness. I'm just doing nothing. Take a break to listen to Jesus. So often I hear people say, look, I'm just taking a break for a while. I'm feeling real burnt out. They don't bother listening to Jesus. They just go and do other stuff. I'm like, don't do that. If you ever get to the point where you're getting tired and you're feeling these things, come back to God's Word. Come to your small group, to your connect group. Come to church amongst other Christians and say, oh, I'm just really asking God at the moment to help me to be captured by who He is and what He's done. Look at the positive side of that. Rather than I'm just feeling burnt out and tired, I need a break. And I'm convinced then if, if we take breaks, if we actually have moments where we pull back and spend time listening to Jesus, no one's, not everyone's just going to go, oh, we can't serve Jesus anymore. We're going to be energized because we've seen who he is like a moth to light and we want to serve one another in that. Take time to listen to Jesus. Immerse yourself in God's people. Make sure you get to your connect group to, to love others and to listen to what God is saying through them. Take a day off. A day off is something we need. It's good for us. You know, Jesus took days off. We need them. If the Messiah needed them, then surely we do as well. Take time out to listen to God. And don't let pride or people or productivity or popularity get in the way of the great joy of knowing and experiencing and enjoying and listening to our God who loves us in His Word and by His Spirit. Those of you that are here tonight, and you're thinking through, who is this Jesus? How do I apply what this is saying to me? Mary, Martha, they all thought He was King. What, what, what does this mean for me right now? I don't even know if I, I think He's the real deal. I want to say to you, do exactly the same thing. Come and listen to Jesus. I encourage you to sit at his feet. See who this guy is and what he's said and done. Look for yourself. Ask the questions that you have. For I'm convinced if you recognize who he is, if you see him for what he has done and who he claims to be, it will change your life. It will change eternity. Certainly worth the time listening to him, reading what he said, hearing how those who knew him explain him to us. I want to end with a quote from the guy who wrote that book, Serving Without Sinking. I think it's a really helpful quote to help us remember what's going on as we serve and how we keep serving. He says this, The counterintuitive truth I've come to realize, the truth that prompted me to write this book, is that the only way to get our service of Jesus right is to realize that supremely, ultimately, we don't serve Him, but He serves us. Remember, Jesus is the one who has come to us. He has died in our place. He has enabled us not to have to be perfect anymore, but to love Him without all. He has done it for us so we might be freed from the weight of our rejection of God, from the burden of having to be good enough for God, so that we might be freed to serve Him because we can. 
because of what he's done for us. The freedom to serve comes from recognizing who Jesus is and listening to the wondrous things that he has done for us and for his glory and being captured by him every day of our lives. It's my prayer for me and for you. So why don't we pray that together now, that God would help us to be captured by who this Jesus is. Father God, tonight we are so thankful that you have made yourself clear that you've shown us for what we are like, so often running toward our own love of others, our opinions of what others think of us, and our love of their opinions of us. Lord, we pray that you would help us tonight to see the amazing love you've shown us in Jesus. We pray that we would see clearly who he is and what he's done, and that, Lord, you would keep drawing us back to be captured with the great joy of being called co-heirs with Christ, looking forward to an eternity with you, having our sins forgiven through nothing that we've done but all that Jesus has done. Lord, we confess so often we serve and do things out of pride to build ourselves up so that we might look good. Lord, it's our prayer that we might make Jesus look good.